I still think it's appropriate to have some graduate type of advice that we start our service off with, right? Because they're 18 years old, um, they are about to leave mom and dad probably for the first time, and mom and dad are freaking out that they didn't teach them everything, um, but the students are thinking there's no need to teach me anything because I know everything. So I thought we'll start off with a little bit of advice. So um, I wanted to make sure it was good sound advice. I wanted to make sure it was good theological advice. And so I thought the best place to go was Twitter. And I found some great advice for our graduating seniors on Twitter. So here's the first advice I would give them. Don't use a credit card until you actually know how to use them, okay? Don't we, they all get those applications in the mail and they're ready to go, but they have no idea what they're actually doing. Here's the second advice, and this may be the best one. Your mother is always right, okay? Um, number three advice for them is stop trying to plan everything out. I know they have all these great plans ahead of them, but things never go exactly like you mean. And if you spend all of your time stressing how things don't go, then you'll never really enjoy life. So just have a little bit of flexibility. Here's the fourth wor word of advice I'd give our graduating seniors. Start your 401k immediately, okay? There's no need to wait a little bit longer. Start that money in there right now. And here's the best advice, and this is really for our girls that are graduating, but I think it's the most sound advice we can get. Boys are worthless. Wait until they're men before you start pursuing them. Don't you think that's some great advice? But, you know, probably Twitter's not the best place to go to give them advice. There may be some things they can kind of tuck in for a pocket for another day, but that's probably not the very best place. I do believe this, the best place that we can get advice for our life unto succeeding, whether we are 18 years old or 28 or 78 years old, is the Word of God. And we've been in this series called Snapshots, and Snapshots, we're taking just individual, just accounts in the book of Mark, and we're looking how Jesus is, a, is approaching and how he's encountering people, how they're experiencing faith with him. And one of the things that we've said all along is this, God does not require picture-perfect faith. I've personally enjoyed this series because as I look at the different stories that we're examining, it seems like almost every character that's encountering Jesus never did it right. They had some kind of faith, but it was faith that was kind of missing a little bit still. But Jesus never condemned them. In fact, you feel like Jesus just kind of had his arms open wide the whole time going, I will take you just as you are. And I love that for us. Because I don't know about you, but I'm still not living picture-perfect faith. There's some days I get it, but most days I don't get it. And I love the fact that Jesus looks at me, looks at you, and says, I don't require you to be perfect to come to me. Just come to me the way you are. And we're going to look at a passage today that he gives some advice, and Jesus gives some advice to, to his disciples that I think... Regardless, again, whether you're 18 or 28 or 78, it is great advice for us today if we want to succeed in life. And it's found in Mark chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll have it up there on the screen in here in just a second. But before we read this encounter, this snapshot, let me set the stage for you. This is in the latter part of the ministry of Jesus. So at this point in his life, he is popular. He is everywhere he goes, crowds are following him. Even as he went into people's homes, we learned last week that he had to go in homes sometimes and hide just to kind of get some relaxation and rest. And so in today's particular passage, this particular snapshot that we're looking at, we find that Jesus and his disciples are walking to Jerusalem. Now, Scripture doesn't give us all the details, but I think we can assume that it's not just Jesus and the Twelve. There's probably several other people following. In fact, there could be a whole crowd following him. But at least we know that it's Jesus and his Twelve disciples walking down the road. 
And you've been in groups like that before. There's no way that 12, 13 people can walk and all have the same conversation together. It's just impossible. And so I imagine what's taking place. Jesus is walking. Maybe at times he's talking to a couple of the disciples. And, and there may be a few more over here. They're kind of having their own conversation. So there are probably three or four conversations going on as the men and possibly women that were with them were walking to Jerusalem. And if it's like any crowds I've walked in before, I might talk to this person for a few minutes, and after this conversation's over, I might just kind of mosey my way on over here, and I'll talk to a few more people. So I have this idea that the conversations within this crowd of people, they were moving and mingling and just kind of interchanging as they walked. And where we pick up our story today, two of the men that were the Jesus, James and John, and they were the brothers, they often were called the sons of thunder because they had such kind of strong, powerful personalities. Where we pick it up is the two of them, these two brothers, had mingled, moved over to Jesus, and they're having a private conversation with Jesus. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 35, and here's what it says. Then James and John, again, the sons of Zebedee, came over, and they spoke to him. They spoke to Jesus, and they said, teacher, they said, we want you to do us a favor. That sounds like a pretty innocent question they had for him, right? Can you do us a favor? Has anybody ever walked up to you and said, can you do me a favor? That's not the question I want to respond to. Because it's like they're writing a blank check. Here, you go ahead and sign it. I'm going to ask you to do something, and then you'll find out afterwards what I'm asking you to do. And so I wonder when Jesus got this, this question from them, can you do us a favor? His, his response was like, let me pause here for a second, okay? Let's find out what you're wanting here. Then here they go on, and here's the favor. Because he asked them in verse 36, what's your request? Let me know, and then we'll talk about this. And they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne. Now, if you've got your note sheet and you're writing notes on there, you might even circle that word throne on there. They said, they replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you and on your right and on your left. See, here's what's going on at this point in the life of Jesus. He had been telling his disciples that he was setting up not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. He was establishing the kingdom of God and the rightful throne would be in heaven. But somehow the disciples could not get that through their thick skull. They kept thinking Jesus was setting up an earthly kingdom. And any earthly kingdom would have the king on the throne. And so as they're thinking about it, they're going, listen, if he's going to be king, if he's going to be on that throne, we need to be really close to him. Like, and what they proposed is, Jesus, you'll have a right side and a left side. And back in those days, whoever sat on the right side of a king had the highest place of prominence other than the king himself. And then whoever sat on the left side had the next highest prominence. And so they're thinking in their mind, James and John, going, you know what? If Jesus is about to set up in their mind an earthly kingdom, there's going to be time that he's getting a, load of, a lot of notoriety. I mean, he's set on that king, and everybody's watching him. So if one's sitting on the right and one's sitting on the left, guess who's going to receive some of that notoriety with him? And they're also probably thinking at some point that Jerusalem Gazette's going to come by and take a nice snapshot of Jesus on the throne. So if I'm close to him on the right side and I'm close to him on the left side, guess who's going to become famous in the newspaper if I'm sitting next to Jesus? So here's what we're finding out. These two men moved over to Jesus as all this group was walking to Jerusalem, and they were trying to finagle and manipulate into a place of prominence. They didn't want to just be one of the 12. They wanted to be one of the two, one on the right side and one on the left side. They were going after power. They were going after position. They were going after prestige. And so they looked at Jesus, and Jesus, can you do us a favor? 
Take a snapshot of this. Me and you, him and me, brothers and Jesus all together. Can we just all agree, if they were taking a snapshot of this moment, it might have been the worst snapshot they've ever taken in their life? Because they're not just finagling, they're not just manipulating, they're literally stepping on all the other disciples around them to get to the top. Because they wanted to be seen, they wanted to be noticed, they wanted that place of prominence. Now, before you and I throw too many stones at these two brothers for their maneuvering in life, can we all agree we've probably been there before? Like, maybe not in a conversation with Jesus, okay? I've never asked for the right side of the throne or the left side. But in my workplace, I've tried to move around so I'm the number one guy. In my families, there's many days I woke up going, hey, family, son, daughter, wife, mother-in-law, life needs to evolve around me. You with me? And so I don't want us to be too harsh to James and John. While their question was absolutely just unnecessary, and I think it was out of place. If you're like me, I've been in that same out of place many, many times in my life. And come to think about it, not just my job and not just my family. I wonder how many times that I've also tried to maneuver with Jesus. How many times have I wanted the benefits of the kingdom, but I didn't really want to pay the cost of being in that kingdom? I wonder how many times in my prayers to God, and maybe you can identify with me on this one, it's been Jesus, me, 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 me. And I pray for me more than I pray for him. And I pray for me more than I pray for her. And I many times pray more for me than I do for you. And so as I think about it that way, maybe I'm a lot more like James and John than I originally thought about. But Jesus responds back to the brothers. And I'm amazed, just like the other snapshots that we've looked at in the book of Mark, he never responds back harsh. He, he never responds back with a sharp finger pointing and shaking at them. There's always this grace and humility. Because I'll be honest with you, if I was Jesus in this moment, and I knew that two people out of my 12 friends were trying to maneuver and get more than anybody else, I think I may say, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Could you say that a little bit louder so everybody else can hear what you're asking for? There'd be this moment I want to kind of put them on the spot, on the spot and front them out. Or if I didn't want to put them on the spot, I might just put them in their place at that moment. You're asking me for what? You think you're good enough on me, Jesus, the Son of God, and you want to sit on my right and you want to sit on my left? You really think that much about yourself? But Jesus didn't respond that way. In fact, verse 38, let's look at how he responds. He said, but Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Remember, here's the tension. They're thinking an earthly kingdom. They're thinking right and left in this physical throne. But Jesus knows he's setting up a kingdom way beyond what they can even see. And he goes, you don't even know what you're asking. And then he says this to him. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink from? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? If you do a little bit more study in the book of Mark, this is the third time that Jesus has clearly laid out for them, we're talking about a life of crucifixion that I'm going towards. That he had kind of in the beginning stages of his ministry, kind of behind a veil, held back who, who, who he, not who he was, but his total mission here on earth. But as he gets closer to the cross, he's pulling back that curtain to his disciples and letting them know that he is not here to set up on the big, beautiful throne on earth. He is actually going to be crucified and buried, but that he'd resurrect again. 
And so when he looks at his two disciples, James and John, and says, do you really know what you're asking? You can't even do what you're saying that you want from me. He is not declaring, he's not commenting on their own abilities. He's not questioning their own passion. Here's what Jesus is doing at the moment. He is declaring his own messiahship. He's going, listen, guys, what's got to be taking place? You think you could step up here and do some of this? Only me, the Son of God, who's leading and living a sinful, sinless life, can be crucified on the cross for what I'm here for. And so it wasn't this tug of war, who's better, who's not. It was him simply clarifying that what you're after is not even what the end result is, end goal is. That he is here to give his life for them. And then he goes on to say, as he asked them, can you really do this? They responded, verse 39, oh yes, we can. Okay, I wish sometimes in scripture I could be there. Okay, like Jesus looks at them going, guys, you don't really know what you're asking. Can you really do this? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the, the, the brothers of thunder, sons of thunder. It's almost like they probably like Tarzan put their, put their chest out. Woo, yes, we can do this. And you wonder at this point with this conversation is going on and what's anybody else, what's, what are the other disciples even thinking at this moment? Are they even clued in? Are they still busy on their own conversations? Are they doing their own thing? But they looked at Jesus and said, yes, we can. And then Jesus responds back to them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup and be baptized with my baptism of suffering. What he was prophesying at that moment, that this really bad snapshot that James and John find themselves posing in of their self-assurance and their self-confidence and yes Jesus we can do this and put me on the right and put me on the left here's what we know about Jesus he sees beyond the moment at this very second and he sees down the road because scripture and history lets us know that both James and John will eventually be martyred for their faith in following Jesus and so while they may not be looking really good at this moment, there's going to be a life they're turning around and they're going to find the real following Jesus that they need to be a part of. And that moment, I read that. And I think about our graduating seniors. And if you're a parent or a grandparent of these graduating seniors and there's concern on your part, you're concerned that will they even know how to wash clothes when they get to college. Our real concern is will they keep following Jesus when they get to college. And unfortunately, if we look at the statistics of the number of students that attend church as high school students and go off to college, the opportunity or really the chances and odds of them continuing in the faith and going to church during college just shrinks down to almost nothing. And as parents and, and grandparents and, and pastors, that scares me to death. But here's what we have to remember. Every one of our graduating seniors were God's kids before they were our kids. And no matter how far they walk, no matter where they go in life, they will never get out of God's grips. And that is good to know because just as Jesus looked at James and John and could have did his hands like this and was going, right, listen, this is ridiculous for me even try to corral you guys because y'all are just crazy in your thinking. He could see it in their life and he saw what was down the road. And he knew the Holy Spirit would always be a part of them and he knew they would always be in God's arms and God's hands. And we can rest and, and just in confidence knowing that God has our kids. But they said we could do it, but Jesus said, no, I'm not sure you can, but this will happen to you down the road. 
And then all of a sudden, verse 40, Jesus gives an answer that I think is kind of a startling answer for a second. Here's what it says in verse 40. So they ask, could they sit on his right or left? And here's how Jesus responds. But I have no right to say who sits on my right or my left. God has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. If you circle in your Bible or you're circling your notes, would you circle, I have no right? Like, think about who's saying this for a second. It's Jesus, the Son of God. He's one of the three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Scripture lets us know when the whole world was created, he was there in the midst. Like, he's got more authority than you and I would ever think about. Yet, if anybody had an opportunity to be entitled, it could have, would have been Jesus. But what did he do with his entitlement? It's not mine to take. He respected and revered, and he knew his Father God was the one that would make those decisions. As you and I think about our lives, I think the downfall of most of us is we try to follow Jesus until hang on to our rights. Can I say that again? To make sure we get that one. One of the problems that we have in following Jesus, we want to follow Jesus and still hang on to our rights. God, I've followed you. I've loved you my whole life. I've tried to live for you my whole life. So why would you allow my spouse to be sick? God, I've done the best I can. I've given to this church. But, but God, why would you allow my job the way it's going? There's these things that we hang on to, and it's like we're entitled to God. God, you're lucky to have me, so you must therefore make these things good in my life. And Scripture never, ever, ever guarantees the goodness of life. Scripture always guarantees the goodness and grace of Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, Scripture talks more about our suffering that we'll experience in life than our blessings in life that we think we're entitled to. And here was Jesus himself. If anyone can be entitled, it would have been Jesus, the Son of God, the very part of Trinity that helped create this world. And he says, but I have no right. I believe this, that as a church, but more than a church, as people following Jesus, we would be a greater influence for holy God if we all would just declare every morning and wake up and look in the mirror, I have no right. Because when we say we have no right, that means we give everything to him. What did Jesus say it takes to follow him? Take up your cross, deny yourself. That means give up your rights and follow me. And he was giving us the greatest example right there. But then in our story, as he's having this conversation, communicating to his to these disciples, James and John, that he doesn't have the authority or the right to give them what they want. All of a sudden, the story begins to change. And look what it says in verse 41. When the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. Now the fireworks are starting. Because Jesus has been walking along, he's having this private conversation with James and John, and undoubtedly their conversation wasn't near as private as they thought they were. Undoubtedly, maybe, maybe Matthew's over here, and Matthew was a tax collector, so he's used to writing everything down. He's kind of listening in one ear, and he's like, ooh, hey, Peter, you know, I thought y'all were like the three guys, Peter, James, and John, all three Jesus' best friends. They're over talking to Jesus over here, and they're leaving you out of the inner circle. Peter's going, you got to be kidding me. Thomas, do you think that's really going on? Thomas is going, 
No, probably not, you know, because he was doubting Thomas, so he's probably doubting it's not taking place. But they have these different conversations, and they're over here, and maybe there's a few more disciples over here, and all of a sudden Jesus is looking around going, ooh, the crowd's getting a little restless, okay? This private conversation now turned into public conversation, and so look what Jesus does once he realizes everybody's listening to James and John. So Jesus called them together and said, let's have a nice get-together and sit down and have dinner together. Is that what it says? No. Because I think at this point, none of the 12 would have sat down together. I think at this 12, this would be like if you had three or four boys growing up in your house, sons, it'd be like, you know, sometimes they're just, you just, let them, let them, just need to let them duke it out. I think the disciples are probably at the duke out stage right now. And so Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers in the world lorded over the people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them? You see, back in those days, much like today, if you're an authority, you kept your authority with power. If you were an authority, you probably weren't in your position to make life better for everybody. You were making there to make life better for yourself. And so any authority figure that the disciples had seen their whole life, whether it's the Roman government or the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious rulers, they had seen these men model nothing but authority for their own self. And Jesus goes, hey, you, you know how it works, right? <laughs> I mean, when it comes to authority, people lord it over their people, and they flaunt what they have. But look what he says next. But among you, it will be different. So think about this. The disciples, they, these two talked to him. James and John talked about this. The rest of them are mad. So they're in this authority struggle, right? I mean, they're like, no, you won't get ahead of me. I'll step in front of you, and I'll push you back. And so they were being the very model of what they've seen their whole life from every authority figure. And Jesus looks at them and says, but for you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you listening to me, it will be different. Jesus is about to, much like the graduate valedictorian that's giving the commencement address at his graduation, and he says something so profound, everybody's just going, did he just say that? kind of a drop-the-mic type of moment. And all of a sudden, Jesus is about to say something that's going to turn the ideas that the disciples had about authority. It's going to turn the disciples' idea about success, and it's going to turn it upside down. And it's going to leave his disciples going, whoa. I thought following Jesus was this, but he just made it even more this way. Look what he says. Whoever wants to be the leader among you must be a servant. Now, was James and John volunteering to be a servant on each side of Jesus? No. They were volunteering to get as much as they could for themselves. He goes, but if you want to be a leader, if you want to sit on my right, you want to sit on my left, you want to be in front of people and have authority, you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be a servant among you must be the slave of everyone else. And the disciples are going, whoa. Now, let, let's talk about those two terms for a second, servant and slave. When, when I think of servant, I think of like a one who waits tables. In today's world, that's not a bad job to have. You get a nice minimum wage, and then when it's come time for the tip, do you hate how they do tips now? Like, do you want to give 25%, and you got to find the right buttons to get it off the 25? You know what I'm talking about? And like, I don't want to look foolish because I can't make this thing work. And like, I end up giving 25% to the waiter that deserved 10%. Not a bad job. I'll sign up to be that type of servant. 
This is not the servant that they're talking about here. A servant back in the days of Jesus was probably the lowest vocation that you could have. In fact, remember, it's Jesus. They don't know now because it's not happened yet, but Jesus is going to illustrate to his disciples what it means to serve. When they came in for the Last Supper together, and what did he do? He took his towel off, and he washed their feet. That's what servants did. People would walk around in the sandals in the dusty, dry area, and they'd walk inside. The servant would literally wash their feet. Who would want that job? And Jesus said, you want to be the top of your line? You want to be a leader? you got to wash feet. And then he took it one step further and said, you must be a slave to everyone else. A slave had to give up every bit of their rights. They possessed nothing of their own. And so Jesus was getting his disciples' eyes going, listen, you want success in this life? Then it's opposite of what you think. You're not on top, you're on bottom. And you must serve other people, and you must almost be their slave, that you give up your own rights, you give your, your own possessions, and you put others before yourself. And then he goes on to say one last thing. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. He said, what I'm telling you is not something I'm just using words. What I'm saying to you is what you're going to watch my life. This is what I do here on this earth. I serve others. And then he went on to say, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus would be be such a servant and a slave that he would be crucified on the cross and he would give, give up every right that he could possess and said, but I give it up for you. And so on this particular day, when Jesus was talking with with his disciples, but it's really a snapshot, not just for them, but for us. He is turning upside down what it means to lead and what it means to be a success. I think now of our graduating seniors, and they're going to go off to college, and they're going to go off their jobs, and they're going to go off to military, and whatever the next season of their life is, and the world's going to be saying, hey, you want to be a leader? You need to make more, you need to know more, you need to be more, and you need to be ahead of everybody else. And Jesus is going, take a breath. You, you, You need to serve. You need to give up what you think you're entitled to and give it to somebody else. But these weren't just instructions that Jesus was giving to his disciples, and they're more than instructions that we try to push along to our graduating seniors. It's the same instructions that he gives to every one of us today. You know, the disciples began, James and John began this whole conversation with a question, right? Here's the problem. They asked the wrong question. So this morning as we close, let me give you a better question they could have asked Jesus. In fact, I think it's the best question that we can ask ourselves. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. And here's what it says. The best question that we can ask is, how can I help? Pretty simple, isn't it? Oh, I came to church for something profound, Keith. That's as profound as it gets today. Can you imagine how different life would be for us and your families? is if sons asked um, moms and dads asked daughters and daughters asked brothers and daughters asked dads, they wake up in the morning in a family unit and said, how can I help? Maybe you have a friend group. Instead of arguing over where you're going to eat or who's going to do this, what if you just looked at your friends and said, how can I help? What if when we came to church and said, I wonder if they're going to sing the songs I like or preach the message I like or do this at the church so I get the things I want. What if we came to church and just said, How can I help? 
Or you go to work tomorrow and the person you don't even answer to is a boss. You just walk up to him going, how can I help? How do you think the world would respond to that? Those are some hard words, aren't they? In fact, they're so hard, it's hard to even say. So I'm going to give you a little practice right now. In just a second, I'm going to count to three, and I want you to just turn to the person next to you and say, how can I help? Now, hold on, time out. You're not really having to ask, you're not committing to help right now, okay? We're just practicing saying the words, okay? This is not like some timeshare sales thing, I'm going to put you into something, okay? We're just practicing the words, okay? Are you ready? On the count of three, turn to somebody next to you. Now, I can tell right now by where I'm at, some of you got in an argument on the way to church today, and this is a really awkward conversation you're about to have right here in church, but that's okay. Are you ready? On the count of three, how can I help? One, two, three. Okay, you know what's crazy about that? It wasn't so hard to say, was it? Do you know what happened in the whole auditorium when you did that? Smiles was on everybody's faces. Now, you probably didn't pay attention to that because you were how can I help? I want you to do it again, okay? On the count of three, turn to somebody and just say it again. One, two, three. Okay, I think it's a theological principle that takes place there. Because watch this. We are modeling and mimicking and following the advice and commandment of Jesus by saying, how can I help? Because we're saying, I want to be a servant. I want to be your slave. When our lips and our mouths begin to do what Jesus tells us to, I think it just puts an automatic smile on us because God's made us that way. And then here's what I noticed too. The person you said it to smiled. You know why? Because they are receiving from you a physical expression of love that God designed you to give them and them receive. If we keep looking at Mark, we're going to find out that Jesus looks at the disciples and says, I'm going to give you a new commandment, and the next commandment is what? Love everyone. And so when we serve, it's a physical expression of love. So when we serve, we love, and when we love, that's the most we can be like Jesus. If that doesn't put a smile on your face, and that doesn't put a smile on the people's face around you, smiles just aren't going to happen. And so the best question you can ask leaving here is, how can I help? Now, I'm going to close with this. If that's the best question, the best commitment, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The best commitment you can, leaving, you can make leaving here is, I will leverage me for you. Now, that one doesn't sink in real easy. So I'm going to say it again. Let it sink in. Because when I first thought it and said it and wrote it down, I'm going, it's just not happening yet. I will leverage me for you. Do you know why that one's so hard to sink in? Because we usually do it backwards. I will leverage you for me. Because I will put me at the top. I will put me on the throne, and I need you to do for me so I feel better about myself. But Jesus goes, no, no, no. Servant and slave. I will leverage me for you. Can you imagine what this city would be like, this community can you imagine what this church, can you imagine what your family would be like if your commitment this week was every time you saw somebody, I will leverage me for you. I will use me and what I have to make your life better. And I think from that, the love of Jesus will so spread through us that we will come back next week going, wow, and it was a good week. And so, church, Graduating seniors, followers of Jesus, Jesus said this, you want to be the greatest? You want to be successful? Then serve like Jesus. What can I do for you?
Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this day. And, and sometimes your word, it's so simple, we miss it. And so thank you for your simple but yet profound and life-changing word to us today that we are to serve other people. And we'll all confess this is a whole lot easier to say than it is do. And so will you empower us? Will you change our hearts? Will you mold us that we can simply use me for leverage for you this week? And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.